Mark chapter 7 this morning. You know, there was a, a time when if you said, use the word religion, or somebody was religious, uh, that was a positive thing. You know, he's a religious man. Sometimes we'll, we'll say he's a man of faith. But if you use the word religion, it was a, it was a positive uh, expression that they were religious. They were a person of faith. They were a person of good moral values. They were somebody who was sincere in their religious faith. But really, nowadays, the way we might use that, we say, yeah, they're, they're, they're religious. It, it's really more of a, a, a negative connotation, uh, especially the way we often use it in the church. We'll differentiate between sincere faith and, well, we're, you know, we're not about religion. We're about relationship. Well, I think we know what we mean by that. And often is the way that that is used is that religion is more of a connotation in a negative way as, as just kind of a, a dead religious ritual and traditionalism. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus really pushes back in a situation against this, this concept of religious. If we want to use that, and again, just to, for our purposes here this morning, that we'll use religious as kind of just that dead formalism. You know, we might say traditionalism. Uh, there's nothing wrong with tradition, but traditionalism, formalism, legalism. Oftentimes we'll use the word religious to refer to kind of a legalistic. Uh, you get the idea. Jesus in Matthew, or in, I always want to say Matthew, but Mark, Chapter 7, that's where we've been in for uh, 22 weeks. But Mark chapter 7, Jesus pushes back on the dead traditionalism, the hypocrisy, the legalism in a, in a very dramatic situation that I think can be quite helpful for us this morning. In essence, when we talk about religion or the way I'm using it right now, uh, religion tends to focus upon the external appearance of something. It focuses on the outward versus where I think our understanding is the gospel works from the inside out. Jesus works from the inside out. Religion is, is interested in kind of keeping a good life polished on the outside. And we see this with uh, this confrontation Jesus gives us with some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Remember them? Uh, religion is based on the belief that getting things in order externally will take care of whatever problems we might have on the inside. If I can just get my outward environment together, that's going to affect what's inside. See, this is, uh, before we look at our passage, just laying a little groundwork, is that that is the real difference between the gospel and uh, religion. And again, you know how I'm using religion this morning. Religion is an approach to that one's relationship with God that, that believes that the greatest threat we face is outside of us and the solution is inside of us. Christianity says the greatest threat is inside of us and the solution is outside of us. Religion is what you do by your efforts to gain acceptance to God. The gospel, Christianity, is what God has done to make you acceptable by His grace because of who Jesus is and what he has done on your behalf. So in our uh, passage that we're going to look at this morning, we'll see that there was certainly an agreement over that there's a problem, but how Jesus and these religious folks, these Pharisees, 
Jewish religious leaders of his day, how they approach this problem is quite different, radically different. So this morning, the title of this message is called Straight to the Heart. We've been in Mark for a while now, as I said, calling it Jesus 101. And uh, the reason Jesus 101, if you ever taken a freshman class, usually the 100-level classes are the basics. And I find that, for me, I find that I'm not struggling with some of the real deep doctrines. I'm struggling with just the basics of living for Christ every day. Just those basic things of living for Jesus and integrating the gospel into my life every day in the most simple ways. So if, if uh, uh, Jesus 101, you're, you're at graduate level, you're at seminary level, well, some of us are still maybe at freshman level. Maybe some of us could say we're still in, in kindergarten or elementary school. But we, you know what? We never stop desiring to be teachable and learning for Christ. So if you have your Bibles open, you can remain seated. And um, I believe uh, I want to just read this morning verses 7 through 8. And that should be on the screen, I believe. And uh, even though we're going to cover through verse 23, uh, verses 1 through 8... I believe is, uh, gives us, kind of sets it up where we're going. So if you have your Bibles open, it's on the screen uh, or your phone and you're not on Facebook or something, uh, you can follow along by that way as well. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, came to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples uh, ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, for the Pharisees, this is kind of a parenthetical statement explaining by Mark, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Verse 4, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash or wash their hands in this ceremonial way. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. They're a cleanly group. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the, to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would, Lord, give us ears to understand your word this morning. Lord, that we would, Lord, help to discern between those areas that we have fallen into that are dead ritual, that are tradition or, or, or kind of a, a way of approaching our relationship with you that is more based on what we do, how we perform, rather than receiving and walking in the truth and in the blessing of your son, Jesus Christ, who has made whatever relationship we have possible. We thank you for your word this morning. Convict us of it, convince us of it, and conform us to Christ, we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. And you notice in verses 1 and 2 is that you have this group, the Pharisees. Sometimes you see Sadducees. They're the kind of the two main groups. But Pharisees were scribes, legalists of the Jewish law. And it's almost as though they've got 
these kind of religious hitmen, they're always following Jesus. You'll find throughout the Gospels, there's times in which uh, they were always kind of standing kind of in the back off the side where, uh, you know, they're looking to trip him up. They're looking to find some way to uh, get him in a conversation that might be used against him. And we see these folks always watching, looking for something to criticize uh, now, what, did they, what they noticed was that these religious leaders criticized Jesus because his disciples, his disciples are his followers, that they did not wash their hands before the meal. Now, it isn't a hygienic issue. It's not that they were against using uh, lava or whatever it is to wash their hands before the meal. So anybody here, kids, you can't use that verse to not wash up before dinner. That's not what he's talking about. This is a religious ceremonial thing that they did. And these Pharisees, these scribes, were ticked off because his followers did not hold to, remember what your passage says, they did not hold to the traditions of men. Now, in verse 3 and 4, remember if your Bible, which I'm sure it does have little, has parentheses, in verses 3 and 4, just a little freebie here, is remember that Mark's audience is non-Jewish. They're Roman. They're Gentile. So verses 3 and 4 is explaining this ceremony, this ritual that the Pharisees do because a Gentile, a Roman, wouldn't have any clue about it. They're not Jewish. So Mark kind of explains what this is all about, and that's helpful to us, okay? The tradition of the elders was a ceremonial practice that was handed down for generation and generation. This, like a lot of the rituals, the uh, Jews took their identity in some of these rituals because it was in these traditions and rituals that their identity as Jews uh, was, was kind of symbolized. And here's what's going on behind this ceremonial washing of hands. That whenever, the, whenever they practice these rituals, and in this case the washing of hands in a kind of a ceremonial way, it was a symbolic reminder to these Jews that they were God's special people. And what they were washing wasn't necessarily germs, because I'm not sure they quite had that advancement in science, but what they were washing in this way was washing off any Gentile residue that they might have come in contact with that day. You with me? So it was kind of like if I shook hands with an African-American brother and then immediately I pulled out my handkerchief and started doing this, what would you think? That would be pretty, be pretty bad, wouldn't it? That'd be pretty bad. That's kind of what's going on behind here. Notice what it says about verse 4 about when you go to the marketplace. Because heaven forbid that a good Jew might touch something that was touched by a Gentile. Gentile is a non-Jew. So they, want, they had added in this tradition. It's not in the Bible. It wasn't in the Old Testament. But they added in this tradition that just kind of reinforced the sense that, you know what, now, now, there's a good part of it, we're God's special people, and, and God continue to cleanse me. There's not, you know, what, okay, that's okay. But it kind of degenerated into a, a little more than that, 
God, help us wash off and keep that Gentile. We're your special people. And it just reiterated that we belong to God and they're the scum of the earth. You with me? That's kind of what's going on here. So it's a little more than just how come your disciples don't, you know, use dial before they eat. It has nothing to do with hygiene. Now, you know, it's easy to kind of be hard on these Pharisees. But let me just kind of, kind of step back a little bit. The Pharisees came about as a religious group in the, about 400 years before, or maybe somewhere in the middle there, before Jesus was born. And, and they came out as a result of when the Jews, remember, because of the temple being destroyed and Jews were scattered all over Babylon and, 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 and exile, and that that's where we saw the synagogue. That's where we saw it come into existence. And we saw these religious groups because the temple did not exist. The temple was destroyed. It would be hundreds of years before uh, it would be attempted to rebuild of any significance. So these Pharisees, in a good way, in a good thing, they wanted to make sure that God's people living all over the planet, basically, that they adhered to observing the law of God, the word of God. And so they sought to make sure that they uh, protected the law, that they, that they provided ways to help God's people live out what the law or the Bible, they didn't have the whole Bible, but you're with me. They wanted to help people where it, for example, the fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. Well, they wanted to make sure they, in a, in a good way, I don't think they sat around, let's say, how can we make these people crazy? We'll create all these laws. No. As rabbis, people were coming and having issues, and they said, you know what, why don't we write some of these things down that are helpful of how to obey and keep the Sabbath? And they began to write these things down, and they began to be passed on, and over time, other rabbis would, would comment, and you know, about, you know, somebody would bring up about, you know, well, what if your ox falls into the ditch on the Sabbath? Is it right to, you know, because that's your, that's your economic livelihood in that, in that time period. Is it right to rescue him, or should we just lay there and he die, and then come Monday, or come, you know, Sunday, really, because the Sabbath is on our Saturday, uh, you know, then all of a sudden he's dead in the ditch and I have no livelihood. Is it right to rescue him? Or you remember there was times when the Pharisees got ticked off at Jesus because he healed on the what? The Sabbath day. They didn't care this guy got healed. They were just, they were mad because he violated their concept and their tradition. Everybody see where we're going here? So a lot of times that happens with us. It starts out with something good, a principle to help people. But you know what happens? It falls into legalism. It falls into this, and we think, well, why do we do what we do? You've heard me use this illustration of the woman who, uh, you know, she, she, when, she, when she cooked a ham, every Christmas she made a ham, and uh, she always lopped off, cut off both ends of the ham and put it in the, the pan and put it in the oven. One day her husband asked her, said, honey, why do you do that? She said, I don't know. That's the way my mom did it. Let me call mom. Find out. So she calls mom up. Mom, why didn't we cut both ends of the ham and put it in the pan? Mom says, you know what? I don't know. That's just the way grandma did it. I'll call grandma. Calls grandma. Ask her, why do we cut both ends of the ham off and put it in the pan before we cook it? She said, because my pan was too short. 
Do you see how things get... And we wonder, why do we do what we do? So let's not be too hard on the Pharisees. Here's what I want you to keep in mind here. Is this is the issue, is we often try to solve our problems with sin by focusing on surface issues, okay? We often focus, and that should be point number one up there. I probably didn't say it, so that's my fault, okay? We concentrate on surface issues, and here Jesus teaches us that doing religious activities on the outside does not mean a person is right on the inside. That's what's going on here in these first five verses. See, they are so sharp, they know if I don't say it, they're not going to do it. So I didn't say it, and they were good. So they're, they're a tight group up in that media booth up there, so I appreciate them. But see, we're not much different. We're not much different because oftentimes we try to solve our problems with sin. That's what the Bible talks about as a heart issue. But we do it instead of dealing with the heart. What do we do? We rearrange the furniture on the Titanic. Hello? Right? Isn't that the way we deal with our issues? Our Titanic, what are we doing? We're out moving around the chairs and you know, polishing the brass and all that. We're on a sinking ship. But that's the way we deal with human nature. We, we want to focus on these outer surfacey issues, but Jesus wants to get right to the heart. See, we want to, in a sincere way, just like the Pharisees, I believe, did at one time, and I'm sure not all of them were bad. We know Nicodemus and uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, you know, and we know others. But they wanted to, to be helpful in applying their understanding of the law, but it kind of degenerated into this legalistic nitpicking. Anybody ever been around or in a church that was nitpicking legalists on stuff? Huh? I think all of us have. I mean, for in, our, in American history, around the beginning of the 20th century, the early 1900s, that when evolution really came on the scene heavy and certain religious denominations began to try to compromise and match the Bible with science and all those things and began to look to the authority of science rather than Scripture, and they sought a way to, to, to try to move us, you know, move Christianity to more relevancy. Well, then you had another group that were called the fundamentalists. Fundamentalists. Not a lot of fun. A lot of damn and not much mental, all right? Fundamental. No, that isn't what it means. That's something I think Mike Williams told me. All right. Uh, but this was the fundamentalist movement. What did they want to do? They wanted to, they, and, and again, this is a good thing, people, okay? This is a, they wanted to make sure that we understood why we believe in the deity of Christ, why we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Those are good things. But over time it began to degenerate into my version of Christianity is better than your version of Christianity. Okay? And some of us have been down that road to where all of a sudden, uh, in order to maintain with a desire to worship the Lord and honor the Lord's day, then they begin to say what you can and can't do on the Lord's day. And this may sound a little crazy, but some of you, I think, could remember this or maybe... Uh, you know, you're not going to play cards on Sunday. Um, certainly, you're not going to go to movies. My mother, you know, we didn't go to church, but can't go to a movie on Sunday. Okay, you know, why? We don't even go to church, but I can't go to a movie. Somehow that was some religious thing in her, in her head. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about playing cards. 
You know, it doesn't say anything about going to movies, obviously. It doesn't say anything, you know, about a good gin rummy on the Lord's Day or anything like that. It doesn't say anything about that. And there could be a principle of saying, you know what, we blow it out for the world six days a week. Can we not take one day? We're going to do some family stuff. We might read the Bible together. We might watch, do something. And I think a lot of families understand that. But we get fixated on these surfacey things. Uh, how about uh, Christian groups that fixate on a certain way of dressing? Now, obviously, we're not talking about providing. You know, there, there's, there's, there's common sense. There's wisdom. There are some religious groups that have, that have believed that if a woman wears pants, that that is an abomination. I remember in high school going to the girls' basketball games not to play, but to look for girls, but to go to girls' basketball games and playing certain groups, and they would be on the court with culottes or, you know, skirts or whatever. Our group was a bunch of radical liberal girls, and they always beat, beat them, but, that didn't, you know. Again, there was probably, again, an understanding that modesty is a good thing. And you know what? We need a little more modesty in the church. We need a little more modesty. We need a little more modesty in some of our Christian weddings. Hello, that's free. I probably wasn't anointed, but I said it. All right? You can figure out what I mean by that. We fixate on dressing a certain way. We fixate over what you can or can't do. I grew up where if you listen to certain kinds of music or certain radio stations, it was such a big ordeal. Nobody wanted to deal with some of my, the heart issues, but they wanted to get upset because I had an FM99 or K94 bumper sticker on my clipboard. Now, you don't know what those are, but those were the hard rock stations in Virginia Beach. And yes, I deliberately put them on my clipboard and took it to Christian school just to irritate the teachers. I know that. I know that was sin, but that was, my, that was what I did, and I, I relished in that irritation. So I probably wasn't a good example in that way, okay? We'll edit that out. But see, all was intended to be a good guide or principle for living for God. But see, this is what the Pharisees did. It didn't start out bad, but over time, they equated their traditions with God's Word. That's where we get in trouble. Religion distorts the meaning of worship, leading people to believe that merely conforming to an external standard or observing a ritual can compensate for the absence of dead, lifeless heart and passion for God. You are being here, and I believe being here and being in worship under the word, God, the Holy Spirit, will bless you and you'll be better for it. But you have not earned anything of grace by being here today. God is not impressed with you being here today. He's not impressed with you tipping him 20 minutes ago. He's not impressed by that. That, that, that. that doesn't impress him, okay? And if you're doing anything with kind of a... You're, and you're living like hell Monday through Saturday, but you get, you get your religion on early Sunday morning. You know, you start out watching a little Charles Stanley, a little Michael Youssef, Joel Osteen for 30 seconds and turn the channel. You know, you start your little process, right? You think, you know, we better get in church. We better get in church. And that's okay. That's good. I'm glad you're here. But if it's just religion, 
And then once you leave here, you change out of your church clothes. How many remember church clothes? Church clothes. See, some would look at us is that we're anti-tradition because we don't have, we don't have, you know, we don't, I don't dress in robes and a suit and tie. We live in Florida, people, right? I mean, even this long sleeve shirt, but that's just, you know, that's okay. It's because I'm here and you're there. And I try to do things a little differently. I want to look like a slob, okay? But see, when we begin to think that how we perform impresses God, that's where we fall into the same trap of the Pharisees. There's a second principle here in verses 6 through 13. And secondly, is confusing our ideas for God's ideas. That's what was going on. Jesus teaches that if there's a conflict between culture and Scripture, guess what? Where should we always land? On Scripture, right? Scripture is our authority, not religious traditions. So when we focus on surface issues instead of the heart of the matter, this is where we face a danger. It's not in your screen, but verses 6 through 13, if you have your Bibles. And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. I mean, these guys just asked him a question, and what does he call them? Hasn't he ever taken like a people, Dale Carnegie, some kind of course, you know, on how to win friends and, win, win friends and influence people? I mean, they just asked him a question. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right about you. I, we just asked you a question. But he got, he's cutting straight to the heart. He quotes Isaiah by saying, This people, Isaiah the prophet, said about Jesus applied it to them. This people honors me with their what? That's what religious, religion does. Talk. All talk. But he says their hearts are what? Far from me. In vain, emptiness, do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. You see what's going on there? It, it seems a little harsh that Jesus is pushing back there. But what did the Pharisees do? They did like they did in other situations. They challenged him publicly and he had to expose them publicly. He, he challenged... Remember when they said, uh, Jesus, should we... Um, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, he was in trouble if he said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar. What are they going to do? They're going to run to the Roman officials and say, this Jesus is a dangerous revolutionary. He's calling for anarchy against Rome. You need to arrest him. But if he said, and he said, should we pay it to God or to Caesar? If he said, no, don't pay it to God, then what is going to happen? Well, he's a blasphemer. He's against the word. So, so often they, they, they try to embarrass him, but by their obsession with these surface issues, because they confuse their ideas for God's ideas, he quotes the Bible to them. That's a good thing, right? He quotes Isaiah. Why does he do that? Jesus, I believe it's because he wants to bring people back to conformity with the word of God. That's why he uses the word of God, the prophet Isaiah. When in doubt, use the Bible, all right? Uh, Jesus gives this example, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to, to elaborate on it, so if you just would, uh, you can look at it more in detail later, but he gives an example of their hypocrisy. You know where the word hypocrite came from in the Greek theater? How many of you, uh, and those of you uh, young ladies and, and, and that work in theater, what is the symbol logo of, of theaters? It's kind of a happy face and a sad face. 
And in the Greek, that was, they were called hypocrites. It means two-faced. So you learned something today, Sam, on your birthday. Didn't cost you anything. Two-faced. Isn't that what a hypocrite is? They're two-faced. They're, now, I know, isn't that a character in Batman or, or something like that? All right, so anyway, I digress. Please don't go there. All right, what is it called? Two-faced. That's as I thought it was. That just See, that's what's scary about things that pop into your head and you just say it. All right. He gives this example. Look at verse 11. He says, you say, you say. Another place, he would say it this way. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. He's differentiating between your, your opinion and what God's word says. And he gives the example of the fifth commandment. Fifth commandment is to honor thy father and thy, thy mother, right? But they had this loophole. And if you read it, it was something, it was a Hebrew word called korban, C-O-R-B-A-N. It's in your Bible. I'm not making this up. And they had this loophole, and he, and he calls them out on their hypocrisy for this loophole. And here's, here's the way it worked, is that if I had... If I had a certain amount of money in the bank or, or some possession or whatever, uh, I knew that being in that culture, the responsibility of caring for your mother and father was to the children and primarily to the oldest son. But, you know, uh, Ben, I don't, I don't want all my money to be wasted away taking care of mom. So how can I get out of this? So there was this concept that, that they had allowed in their traditions, that if whatever I declared and called Corban was exempt from religious use. So if I said, I call this money market account that I've got Corban. In other words, that was exempt. I could still honor my father and say, Mom, sorry, you know, I can't really help you this month with the rent and whatever, because, you know, all I have tied up, you know, it's Corban. In other words, it was money that was set aside. That was, that was not in the Bible. That was just some loophole they created so that people could skirt their responsibility to their parents and still maintain their selfish material wealth. You with me? Everybody with me? That was what he's talking about there. And you go back and read it. Charles Ryrie, if you have the Ryrie Study Bible, Helpful Study Bible, he makes this note. And I thought he just, he just said it so succinctly. He said the word referred to something that was devoted to God. That's what they were saying. Oh, all this money I have that I was going to use for you, I'm going to use it for devotion to God. They made a vow. And by supposedly making that vow over that money, they didn't have to use that money to keep the fifth commandment. Do you see why Jesus is calling them out and saying, you're hypocritical. You make a mockery of the word. You create little loopholes so you don't have to obey it. Now, we don't do that today, do we? God wouldn't want me to tithe or give my money. He knows my need. You know? And again, I understand there's different views on whether the tithe on the new covenant, but giving, giving is biblical. And giving in proportion to your income and being faithful in that, that's, that's, that's consistent with Scripture. But you know what? I can't. You can't afford not to. But we have little loopholes in our minds the way that we do things. Ooh, got quiet here. You start talking about money or evangelism. <laughs> What's he doing? He's, he's pushing back and saying that one of your traditions 
isn't honoring God, but it's dishonoring God. You've heard me teach on this before, that the traditions of the elders, you see that in your Bible, the traditions of the elders, in, 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 because we think when Jesus says, well, wait a minute, don't they know the Old Testament? Of course they do. But the teachers of Jesus' day had kind of broken down the authority of God in two, form, two forms. There is the written Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. But then they also had, and I mentioned this earlier, this tradition of the elders, that it was more of the verbal or oral tradition that was passed down throughout history. And what happened over time is that verbal tradition of the elders and what they wrote down and codified became more of an authority than the actual scriptures itself. And the Jews had what is called the the Talmud. The Talmud is uh, a book. And the book is composed, you know, in many ways, the easiest way to describe the Talmud, and I think I've showed a picture of it before or a copy of it. I mean, there's more than one. But that was really a collection of these traditions of the rabbis throughout the years. And it almost looks very similar to like one of our study Bibles. You have a passage of scripture and then you have notes all around it. You ever seen some study Bibles? It looks like God's comments on that person because there's so much of their, you know, I mean. So, but, but there's nothing wrong with study Bibles, all right? Don't get legalistic. All right, it's all right. All right, it's okay. But the Talmud had the tradition or the, the tradition of the elders, and then all around it you had all the notes throughout history of all the rabbis that commented back and forth on how to obey this tradition. And you would have some rabbis writing and commenting, and they would contradict each other. So you had the Talmud, that was the book, inside the Mishnah, that was the, the, the main traditional teaching, and then the notes of the rabbis was called the Gemara, the Talmud. So we think, well, why don't they just obey the Bible? Because they had equated over time the traditions of the elders greater. Their view and their understanding, their ideas became more, prime, more important than God's ideas. You with me? You with me here? All right, because there will be a quiz after church. All right. And Jesus says, you're hypocrites. Here's, here's, here's what we've got to keep in mind here. Here we find out what happens when we focus on surface issues. That's our concentration. It's when we, and then we begin to confuse our ideas, our concept for God's. There's nothing wrong with traditions. Don't hear and say, because there's a lot of great traditions. There's a great, you know, Christmas and all those things are with it. We're not talking about those things. You know, our church, we, there used to be a time when, uh, if you see the little offering boxes in the back, because it was a mindset that we don't want to collect the offering because visitors come in. It reinforces the idea of, uh, you know, that church, all they want to do is ask for money. That's why you have these boxes back there. And then over time, some liberals came in. No, 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 no I'm, I'm teasing. And we began to pass the offering. And the offering, people, some of you put your offering in the box. Some of you put it in the offering plate. Sometimes it's helpful if you fill something out to put it in there. The point is, uh, there, there's, there's really nothing in the Bible that says how you do that. There's a, there's a little bit of freedom there. Some, I remember one church I was pastoring, and when we built the building and we built the, the platform and all that, we didn't have a cross on the platform. 
And I remember this one guy that wanted to talk with me, and he was really serious, and something was really bothering him. You know, your marriage, your family, you know, you got fired, whatever. And you know what his issue was? It really bothered him that we didn't have a cross there. I once said, brother, <laughs> that should not be a big deal. <laughs> That's just a symbol. There's nothing, if you're, if you're attributing religious, is there anything wrong with having a cross? No. Is there anything wrong not having a cross? No. Those are just traditions and things we get in our head. You know, if you don't use the King James Bible, there are some that will fight you over that. Go to war over that. The King James Bible was formulated in 1611. What in the world did they do for 1611 years without the Word of God before the King James translation was made? Do you realize that nobody carries around an original King James translation? Even the original King James is not original because it's been edited so many times. There are folks who will fight you over that. Thirdly, look at this. Thirdly, he gets to the issue of cleansing the human heart. Jesus teaches that the purity of a person is not determined by external actions, but internal heart change. See, he's just kind of layering here. I'm not going to read verses 14 through 23, but, but notice Jesus kind of ramps up the issue now. He's not talking about this tradition, okay, ceremonial washing of hands, it's like, well, I'm glad I got that person off of me. I'm not, I'm a child of God. I'm glad I don't have them on me. Jesus bore the sins of sinners. He didn't wipe nothing off. He took on our full sin. Shame on that gross religious attitude, all right? But it says verses 14 through 23, and again, I'm not going to read it all, but here, here, if you just let me paraphrase what's going on here, I'll read the first few verses. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me. Boy, what a great statement. He just got through talking about the traditions of men, but he says, Hear me. Isn't that what in the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter wanted to build a monument to Moses and Elijah, and if you read it, the voice of the Heavenly Father interrupted him mid-sentence. Read it. Peter is sitting there giving this great idea, and, the, and God the Father just cuts him off. Like, I can't stand that nonsense anymore. I'm going to cut him off. And said, this is my son. You hear him. Jesus, all right? So Jesus says, hear me. Hear me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of the person are what defile him. And he goes on to elaborate. And you understand this, I think. In the Jewish economy, in the laws... They had, they had dietary laws. They had certain foods that were kosher and certain foods that were not. And those foods that they were, you know, like shellfish and pork, no carnitas tacos, no, no, no catfish sandwiches, none of that was allowed, right? Thank God for grace, right? None of that was allowed under that. It was a tra- I mean, that was not a tradition. That was a command of God. You with me? That wasn't just something they could willy-nilly. No, that was a command. That was codified in the law in the Old Testament. Because, again, it was a visual illustration of sin and uncleanliness and the Jews' separation, even down to their diet. God was constantly teaching, even down to what they put in their mouth, was clean or unclean. If they came in contact with a dead body, unclean. 
if they got leprosy or came in contact with the air that a leper was breathing, they would be declared unclean. You get the idea? This was what, but, but Jesus, now he's brought God's kingdom in and things have changed radically. And what Jesus is declaring here in this, in this teaching is that those old, old Testament laws that had their purpose back then are no longer binding or enforced. What it, it, Jesus says in, um, and again, I don't have the verse here, but let's go back here. He says, uh, uh, verse 19, the latter part, notice it's in parentheses. You have your Bible, do you see that? Where he said he declared all foods clean. You with me? What's interesting, remember who was, who was really behind the content of the Gospel of Mark? Peter. Do you remember Peter's vision in Acts, I don't, where he had that vision and he saw those animals? And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And he could go party with the Gentiles. I just wonder, because as Peter was involved in the writing, and Mark was doing the writing, but... Mark wasn't alive during, I mean, he wasn't a disciple, so all the content he got was from Peter. And then when he was writing this, I just wonder if, because now Peter had understanding of what Jesus did, he, he kind of said, hey, put that in parentheses there. Because he, Peter had a revelation of that, and he understood what was going on here greater than he did at the time, because he understood more of God at the time. Does that make sense? All right? If it doesn't, just pretend and nod your head. All right? But, it, but Jesus said in verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. He said another place, it isn't what goes into the mouth, it's what comes out of the abundance of the heart. What's he doing? It's back to the heart issue. He's saying, look, those, old, those food laws had their place and purpose to illustrate and were commands of God. But you're no more holy because you abstain from shellfish than if you eat shellfish or you eat pork or whatever it is. All those things are now... By grace and by the, the purity laws, they played an important role among God's people at the time, but now they've been set aside because he's declared all things unclean. What's he making? He's saying this point is the issue is the heart, not what you eat, not where you go, not what you do on the outside. It's a heart issue, and you can't change your heart by your diet or whatever it is that you want to... He identifies the human heart as that seat, that location of true uncleanliness in our life because it's out of the human heart. Again, not the fleshy muscle organ, but a picture of what's inside of us. What does he go on to say there in these verses? He says he lists all these evil intentions that flow out of the heart. Look at what he says. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice. Deceit, lewdness, slander, arrogance, folly. He's saying that the human heart is a breeding ground for all these kinds of things. John Calvin said the heart is an idle factory. He's saying that these things are not caused by anything outside of us. It's not just changing your environment, but they come from within. See, the lie is, I'll change my spouse. That's my problem. That's my problem. I just, I'll just change spouses. I'll, I'll get a new job. 
I'll move. I'll go to a different church. And we think, and guess what? Same stuff. There, you had here. Same issues with this wife or that husband with this spouse. Why? Because the human heart doesn't change because you change your environment. The government has not figured that out yet. We spend more money on education. We spend more money on welfare. We spend more money on so many things that are needed and are good. But it doesn't have one iota of effect in Charlotte, North Carolina. The human heart, Jeremiah said, is deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? What changes the human heart? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus goes right to the heart. You know what? Even if pornography weren't a $10 billion a year industry in our culture, there would still be sexual immorality. We have bought into this idea that if we just elect the right people and change the laws, then we'll live in a utopia of Christian society. How has that worked so far? Huh? It hasn't. It will never work. Does that mean we should elect scoundrels and liars? No. He's saying the problem with sin is in our environment. The problem with sin is the heart. And how do we deal with the heart? We deal with it not by transforming our, our world but for, or, or by uh, reforming our world, but by a transformation of the gospel. Paul said, by the gospel, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, and everything that's pregnant within that word is the power of God for salvation. Remember, well, I hope you don't remember prohibition if any of you were around between 1920 and 1933, but you remember reading about it. That was the 18th Amendment. Some of you, some of you young folks... Don't know that that actually happened. They outlawed alcohol, every bit of alcohol in the, in the United States and passed a constitutional amendment called the 18th Amendment, added it to the Constitution. How'd that work? Didn't work. It was a disaster. Why? You can't reform the heart. They need, it, the heart needs transformation that only Jesus Christ can give. I'm going to ask Sherry and the folks leading us as we close in worship this morning to come at this time. And this is the deal. Religion, religion prevents an, a person from dealing honestly with the real source of sin, the sin nature, and that's the heart. Jesus said in that last section that we looked at you can go back and read it he said look you can conform to all these standards that had a place and purpose. Something Paul says about the law in the book of Galatians. He says was the law evil or bad? No. But the purpose of the law was never intended to bring salvation. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin because my life does not conform with God's holy standard and it's the law that's like a, uh, a measuring stick that shows how out of touch I am with who God is. God has a standard of His Word. Imagine 
everybody having their own measuring stick. Well, I say a foot is eight inches. Well, I say a foot is 15 inches. Imagine we just all had our little standards, and that's the way our culture is. Whatever works for you, and where, where, where would that, just building a building based on that kind of measurement system where everybody just kind of brings their own little measuring stick? Huh? Would you want to live in that house? No. That's the way our culture is. Everybody's got what, and, and this is a time and season in the Old Testament, in the life of Israel, where it says that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. They did what, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is what? Death. Why? Because if I see everything out of my sinful heart and perspective, I have a distorted view like these Pharisees did. They thought they were following God. They thought they were obeying God. They thought they were conforming and doing good, but Jesus says, no. You have empty worship. Your lips give service to God, but your life is empty. I'm a th- I think that there's a lot of believers today that would have felt quite comfortable with the Pharisees. You see, both Jesus and the Pharisees agreed that the problem with the human race was sin. They just differed radically on how to get to the heart of the problem. And we do the same thing. We concentrate on surface issues. We confuse our own ideas for God's ideas. When we've got to deal with the heart, the human nature, heart needs cleansing, and only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring that cleansing. Listen to this. Listen to this. Don't check out on me. Okay, listen. Religion, religion makes it possible for a person to have an appearance of godliness while at the same time remaining unconverted. You've heard me use this illustration before. Religion is is as if I never took a bath but I just put on new clothes every day. Sooner or later, what's going to happen? The old King James, like Lazarus, he stinketh, right? Jesus looked ahead and spoke about a group in Matthew 7 when he said, there will be those that come to me on that day. And they will claim, Lord, Lord. And he will say, I never knew you. If you read right above that to give context, it's where he's talking about a healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. You know a tree by its fruit, giving that illustration. And then the very next thought process, he says, there will be those that come to me thinking they're bearing good fruit. And they won't discover the root system is rotten to the core until they're in my presence and I say, I never knew you. That's deep deception. Or we take our deception even into eternity that we're waving our resume before Jesus and he says, I never knew you. That should sober us in our thinking. Our problem isn't unwashed hands, but unwashed souls. 
Our problem is not unwashed hands, it's unwashed souls. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us just a teacher. If our greatest need had been technology, He would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us the greatest economist the world had ever known. If our greatest need had been pleasure, He would have sent us a great entertainer. But our greatest need was and is freedom from sin. And He sent us a great Savior. Let's stand to our feet as we worship the Lord this morning.